Hey, everybody. Welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. Good episode. Today, we have Andrew of Forefront Ventures, which is a multi-state operator originally from Washington, uh, and very interesting perspective versus some of the other MSOs. Um, They're very focused on production and margins and distribution and really operating at a high level. They're not interested in fancy marketing or celebrity endorsements. Uh, Really, really interesting as they take their playbook from Washington uh, now into all different kinds of markets with that that strategy in mind. Uh, It's a great conversation. We talk about stock prices and cannabis investing more generally and and where it is today and his thoughts on that. Uh, It was a really blunt, straightforward conversation. Andrew was great. Uh, I think you're really going to love it. Speaking of great companies, I highly encourage you to check out LeafWire, uh, leafwire.com. Currently, they're like a LinkedIn uh, for the cannabis industry, very business focused, but 2.0 is coming soon. I just got off the phone with Peter, and it's all about conferences and growing the community, adding a lot more value. Uh, they're raising their newest round right now. It's an incredible opportunity to get on in the ground floor of, of an ancillary company, uh, of a picks and shovels company. If you're struggling with which market to invest in or what segment of the industry, this is a good way to get a lot of broad exposure without the liability of touching the plant. Anyway, I'll stop plugging it for now, but Peter and LeafWire are awesome. Uh, highly recommend you check them out or reach out to them. Send Peter, uh, the CEO, a message on LeafWire. Start that conversation. All right, guys, let's get into the episode with Andrew of Forefront Ventures. I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Andrew, so nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on the show. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. For sure. Let's start you with an easy one. What's Forefront Ventures? Forefront Ventures is a multi-state operator. Um, We're currently in five states. And um, the model is... We, we, we started off in Washington state where our facilities there, the number one edibles manufacturer and the number two um, flower producer in Washington, one of the more competitive markets in the country. And our thesis um, as a company has been pretty simple. Um, we figured out low cost production and we figured out really efficient growing methodologies. And because of that, we were able to um, offer our customers low price and and thus take a lot of share. And so effectively our strategy is we're taking that on the road. So what we've learned in Washington, uh, we've been putting into our facilities in Massachusetts, Illinois, uh, California. um, And those are really our beachhead um, properties um, right now. So we, we think that, you know, the sweet spot and the value curve in this industry is finished goods production. Um, if you can be a low cost op, a low cost producer of finished goods uh, and be able to offer customers a quality product at a great price, uh, you have a terrific opportunity to take a lot of market share in the market journey. Mm-hmm. And so the way that we think about brands um, in this industry currently, we think that brands per se are pretty overrated right now. Price is our brand. Mm-hmm. And if you can take market share by having quality products at a low price in multiple markets, all of a sudden you're going to have national brands and you'll have done it without the slick razzle dazzle of, you know, 
celebrity endorsements and so on and so forth. And that's how we did it in Washington. And um, that's how we are, you know, continuing to execute, you know, as we move across the country. Well, let's talk about the different uh, parts of the chain here. You started in retail. Um, what was it, what perfected in Washington? Why do you think it's been so successful and sort of those SOPs as you've, as you've taken them other places? What, what did you guys learn? Well, you know, so our CEO, Leo Gantmaker, his family is one of the larger seafood distributors in the country. And so, you know, they figured out, you know, bulk buying the packaging, they figured out distribution, wringing out labor whenever you can um, in terms of automating wherever you can. And so when they got into this market, when they got into this business, um, you know, six or seven years ago, they applied a lot of those practices from, you know, a pretty mainstream distribution industry to cannabis. And, you know, all of those things, how do you, how do you wring every single penny out of the cost that you possibly can? Because you knew that the, the product was going to commoditize. Now, Washington was particularly interesting because it wasn't a limited license state. Basically, if you had a pulse in $10,000, you could get a license to operate in Washington. So therefore, everyone was throwing up, you know, cultivation facilities everywhere. And what happened is, you know, you had upwards of a thousand cultivation licenses out there and all this supply. And you saw prices drop from, you know, $2,000 a pound all the way down to under $600 a pound at its worst. And so necessity is the mother of all invention. And so we had to really figure out, you know, how we were going to continue to be profitable operating in, you know, a low cost environment like that and a commoditized environment. And there's not really one thing that we can point to, but it's a lot of different things. It's making sure that we had our uh, HVAC dialed in, make sure that we had the strains that we knew that we were going to be the highest producers, highest yield yielded. Um, our processes around drying and curing, our processes around how we managed uh, automation and distribution. And all of that, you know, led us to, you know, be able to produce uh, a gram of weed in Washington for about 65 cents. And so that enabled us to be, you know, really profitable in a very competitive environment. And so as we've sort of rolled the clock forward, you've seen a lot of capacity leave that market. People have not figured out the things that we have figured out. And basically they say, you know, this, this doesn't make sense. We can't make any money in this business. So capacity is leaving. So you're seeing, you know, prices rebound in Washington, you know, up towards a thousand bucks a pound, mm -hmm. um, which is probably about equilibrium Colorado. I think we're about 1200 bucks a pound wholesale. And so we looked at that model. So that was on the gross side. And then on the finished goods side, we have, in Washington, a 40,000 square foot finished goods production facility with two kitchens, two extraction labs, you know, where we're making 25 different brands and over a thousand different SKUs of products. You go in there, and it's the closest thing to consumer packaged goods that I've seen in the cannabis industry. And, you know, you Is figure there all it out. Third party brands that you're manufacturing too and producing? I'm sorry. These are also third-party brands that you're manufacturing. No, in Washington, we're just your... doing we're just doing our own brands out of our facilities. Got it. And so, and you know, ultimately, you know, we're, while we're good at cultivation, you know, we think that you know, ultimately, you don't want to be a farmer. Um, you you know, you want to be 
you know, you want to have these, these broadly accepted finished goods that you're able to produce efficiently. Mm-hmm. And so basically what we've done is said, okay, like let's, let's take these methodologies that are tried and true and battle tested in one of the most competitive states in the country. And let's pop them into Massachusetts where, you know, you could sell, you know, a pound selling for $2,500. a pound. It's like, if you can come anywhere near to that 65 cent a gram cost, you're making outside margins and you've got a lot of wiggle room to bring down price um, where competitors who haven't figured out low cost production um, aren't able to. So that's really been our thesis. And, and Massachusetts was the first proof of concept. So people say, okay, well, that's great. That sounds like a great plan. Are you doing it? And we are doing In Massachusetts. All of our brands have been introduced. Um, we actually just, just announced um, the addition of another 15,000 square feet of canopy, which we hope to close on in, in early January. Um, so we have, we have aspirations to be a, a scaled wholesaler in every state we're in. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, so the buzzword in the industry right now is MSO, right? Everybody wants to be an MSO. Um, yeah. What's the strategy here? Do you guys want to be the biggest? You know, do you want to be the most? When you think about the landscape of MSO, where do you guys fit in? I think um, longer term, you don't want to be a farmer because big ag, outdoor grow, that's going to be, that's going to be, you know, maybe, maybe down the road, we'll, we'll, we'll want to do premium or something like that. But as it stands, like we, we generally think of, um, we generally think of the cultivation side is biomass um, and biomass is, you know, going to get cheaper there. There, there are folks that are going to come into this industry that are going to do outdoor and, Biomass is going to get incredibly cheap. So that's not where we think the sweet spot longer term is the value curve. Then you go to the other side of the spectrum on retail, and we really like retail. Um, it's great to be able to be vertically integrated in the markets you're in. You're able to you know, capture a lot more margin. But I'm not positive that you want to have you know, this massive retail base, you know, because longer term, um, you know, you're going to have a big retail base that's going to comp negative. You know, meaning the same store sales are going to be negative. You look at some of these things, it's like, okay, you get saturated, you get adult use, that's great. And then more competition is going to come in and price is going to compress. And, you know, ultimately, you know, what's a what's a retail base that's comping negative worth? Mm-hmm. Probably not Probably not as much as, as, as people think. And so where we think the sweet spot is, is having all these finished goods. Um, you know, we want to be a consumer packaged goods producer, uh, um, you know, Budweiser, uh, whoever, um, where you have a portfolio of products that are consistent, uh, very well received. You're able to you're able to manufacture them consistently from state to state to state. Which and is a hard thing to do, which is a hard thing, which, to do. which is a really hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, especially when but, it comes to flowers. Right. That's the hard. Well, especially hard when it comes to flowers. You know, that consistency's, you know, I mean, sh- shoot, you could have, you could have buds off the same, the same plant that are going to have, you know, slightly different terpene profiles and slightly different THC profiles. So that consistency is really tough, but, you know, the, the finished goods piece is really where we think the action is. And so we just, 
completed a 170,000 square feet square foot facility in Commerce, California, which is uh, a little bit east of L I mean, east side of LA, and not cultivation at all. We've basically taken the low cost manufacturing that we have honed in Washington State, and we put it on steroids for a much bigger market of California. And because we've spent so many years tinkering with the automation and the low cost production and survive, not only surviving, but thriving in a really competitive market like Washington, we thought we were uniquely qualified to go into a state like California, where it's obviously competitive, um, but we felt like we were uniquely qualified to go in there and put our automation that we've developed on steroids for a much bigger market. And we currently think that we can produce you know, our own products and be able to not only undercut the legal market, uh, but undercut the illicit market by 20% and still make 20, 30% margins. So we think scaled low cost manufacturing is kind of where it's at. And, 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 and as uh, far as the finished products are concerned, where does it land in terms of quality, like in the landscape of what's available in California or Washington? Like there's obviously a sweet spot there in terms of profitability. Yeah, I think I think that our products are B plus. Mm -hmm. um, we um, we do not think that, um, you know, there, there obviously is a market for premium products and I'm not poo pooing that. I'm saying that we can have. If you see two vape pens, you know, one is a top end sauce pen and one is, you know, a uh, uh, fresh frozen full spectrum tripping pen, but not quite as good, but we're able to offer it for 30% less. People, people will say good enough. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's the market that we like to be in. So, you know, in cannabis, there's a lot of elasticity in the end markets. So if you can cut price, you can take a lot of market share. Um, and there's also very much an 80-20 rule where the heaviest consumers are 80% of the market. Mm -hmm. And those, those are the folks that are you know, driving a lot of your volume. And they're very price sensitive because they're, they're buying all the time. And so that is, that is really our sweet spot. Um, you know, we, we have on the flower side, good, better, best um, in, you know, in Washington and Massachusetts and Illinois. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we, we do have that strategy on the flower side, but on the, on the finished goods side, you know, I think that our products are, 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 are B plus and they're being well received by the market. People love the price. Absolutely. Nothing wrong with B plus. Yeah. A lot of fortunes been made in that realm for sure. Um, and you're totally right. I mean, so much you put it in an 80 20 way. So much of the revenue is from stoners in this industry mm -hmm. still, which, which is great. There's all this narrative about the next wave of consumers, right? Of soccer moms and lawyers and low dose beverages. How real is that? How much do you see that coming? You know, I, I, I am always, I always want to be very open-minded and open-minded and humble um, because there's a lot that, you know, we, we need to figure out and do. 
But I look at, you know, we look at beverages. It's 1% of the market. I don't know. I want them to be really popular, but yeah, 1% is too. But, but so I, I sort of say, gosh, you know, I, I have beverages once in a while. I'll see them in our dispensary and I'll bring them home and, you know, give one to my wife and she'll say, yeah, fine. And I'll have a couple, and, but I'd rather go smoke a bowl. Yeah. And, and, but I'm also a guy that never thought that, you know, 23 year old college students would be drinking flavored seltzer waters. So, you know, you have to, you can't, you can't always substitute your preferences for what the, the broader market is. That's a lesson that I learned as a small cap investor. So we're tuned into it all. Um, but, you know, the bread and butter for this industry right now is, you know, kind of that sweet spot that we think that we're in. Um, mm -hmm. um, there was another point that I wanted to make. Yeah, I mean, look, there, 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 there are going to be people that make money on all sorts of niche stuff for soccer moms and, and, and you know, premium, premium mints that a soccer mom can have in her purse or whatever. Um, but I'd say that soccer mom's going to buy those mints, you know, once a month. Um, yep. You know, our guys are coming into the dispensary, you know, three times a week, mm -hmm. high size. Mm -hmm. Um and and that's really where your bread's buttered right now. Um, you talked a little bit about what makes a good brand. Tell me a little bit of, more about the portfolio. Like, is it better to buy? Is it better to build? How do you guys think about that? Really and truly see virtually zero. Um, we've spent, I think, collectively, you know, in our seven years, under a million bucks in branding. You know, we've got guys that, you know, are, are graphic artists that, you know, come up with our packaging and, and um, you know, our, our stuff looks slick and, you know, our brands are, are just becoming recognized. You know, six years into Washington, we're starting to get some brand loyalty where people say, yeah, I like Funky Monkey. That's a good, that's a good strain. And they're, they're, they always have Funky Monkeys are a premium brand of flour. And we'll have a bunch of different strains under the Funky Monkey name, but people will say, "Yeah, I'll pay a little bit more for that Funky Monkey." You know, those strains are always pretty solid. Um, but with um, our other brands, we 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 really lead with with the products, and we can bring a new product to market if we think if we think a, the market needs something, we can bring it to market in about six weeks, and if it flops, cut it off. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no, there's no, um, I, I just don't think that brands are as important right now. Mm -hmm. No one is walking into my Massachusetts facility right now and saying, give me some of that Willie's reserve. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, no one's saying, you know, I'm looking for, well, maybe they are, but a little bit, but you know, they're looking at, okay, I've got X, Y, and Z gummy squares. One is 30% less. It's pretty darn good. Yep. I'm saying, okay, I'll take that one. That and I've never heard there. of either brand. So, okay. <laughs> you know, who cares? Yeah. yeah. And so just now, and, you know, so, but Marma's is the number one edible in, or number one gummy in Washington, I, think, mm -hmm. I believe. And so, and we've put like very little marketing into it, but we're in 300 stores in that state or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, all of a sudden you get brand recognition and you have consistency and you bring new flavors. 
But what we think that the market on the East Coast, because I'm I've, I've always been an East Coast guy, and you know I'm used to vertically integrated, you know, the the GTIs, the you know forefronts, you know, everyone with their they try to be vertically integrated in these limited license states. You go out west, you know, particularly Oregon and Washington. You walk into Uncle Ike's or something like that, and it's just this, just brands and boxes everywhere. And what we found is that price is our brand, and we want to give those retailers freshness too. So instead of a Marma, let's call it a Sunchu or whatever. It's like, oh, it's a Sunchu, and that looks that's a little different form factor. And wow, that's different. I haven't tried that before, and it looks cheap. And so we're trying to like. We think freshness is more important than, and given that retailers, um, you know, some fresh things to put put in front of customers, you know, is is a pretty big deal right now too, uh, particularly on the West Coast. And so it's a lot different than the East Coast markets. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know better than I do, but in a lot of uh, markets in the U.S., whatever you put on the shelf is going to sell out, right? I mean, there's just such limited access. Well, and that's the thing that's been going on. Like you look at Massachusetts, like you could you can grow grass clippings and you could sell it for four thousand bucks a pound in Massachusetts. And that game, you know, here we are, what, four years in, that game is coming to a close. Yeah. You know, you saw wholesale pricing in Massachusetts come down to twenty five hundred bucks. You know, if you don't have if you don't have A or B quality wholesale weed. There's not a market for it, mm-hmm. um, wholesale yep. in Massachusetts. Yep. Absolutely. So, um, go ahead. Ah, um, we talked about retail. How much you guys think about delivery and sort of the e-commerce side of it? Um, I think that there's been an incredible money put into brick and mortar, which is fine. But mm-hmm. if you look at how we buy everything else, we buy it on Amazon, right? Is that where we're headed? And how much you guys think about that? Well, I think delivery in and of itself is a pretty tough model. Um, you know, people say, well, why don't you do delivery in Massachusetts? It's like, well, we do, we are going to do it a little bit around our Brookline store where we're in the city. And, but you look at the margins of that business, it's just not as good as our core business. And if we're, you know, how much incrementally. So in our store in Georgetown, Mass, on a Friday afternoon, we have a thousand customers through there. And, you know, we're, we're turning that customer, 50% of them are ordering online. We've got their orders waiting for them in the bags. They yep. come in, they're in and out of that store in under six minutes, I believe. Well, that's e-commerce too, right? You know, it is e-commerce. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's true. That's true. So 50% of our, 50% of our orders, maybe a little bit more, you know, in Massachusetts are, are online. Pickup orders. And, so you, and then you say, all right, well, you take a delivery model. It's like, all right, you're going to, you're going to load up Andrew with a car full of, you know, seven orders and you're going to drive them around Worcester and like, it's okay. Um, but you know, executing that business model is pretty tough. We would much rather partner with an ease or someone like that. Who's, who's doing that mm-hmm. or a distributor like Navis and mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in California, mm-hmm. but you know, we're, so it's interesting. Like right now, I don't like I, I'm a I'm a big beer and wine drinker. I don't I like to go into the store and look at my look at what beers are there and look at wines there. And I could order from Drizzly anytime I wanted and just have it delivered here. I don't. 
Um, and I think particularly with cannabis right now, I think that there's, I think that people like to go into the store. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's kind of an adventure. You see what's new, you see what's going on in the store. You know, even my, even my buddies here in town who are, you know, reasonably big consumers, you know, they're used to just having their guy deliver what he delivered as recently as three years ago. Yep. And, you know, all of a sudden you're going from drinking bathtub gin to going into a liquor store where, you know, you have all this, all this variety and all these different form factors. And so I think going to a store is, is still at this point in the cycle, a pretty good, a pretty good experience for folks. And I think probably the winning formula is a mix. You know, if you think about our day-to-day lives, like, sure, we may have some impulse buys, we may order online, we may get served a good ad and buy something. I mean, you know, it's Mm -hmm. a, it's an omni-channel thing to use a, to use a buzzword. Um, Let's talk about the black market a little bit, illicit market. Um, It's a really big problem in California. I think it's less of a problem in some of the (laughs) other markets, but uh, what do you hear in Massachusetts or Illinois? Do people still buy from their dude? Do they still want to do that? I think some of the heavier consumers in Massachusetts, there's a lot of folks going up to Maine to buy. Maine is a big, you know, illicit growing community up there. Um, you know, and you can still get stuff. You can still get flour. You can get an ounce of flour here in Boston, illicit for 200 bucks. I think that, um, you know, we'll get to California in a second. I think particularly in the East Coast, you know, people, um, I think the vape crisis kind of changed the market a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, geez, what the hell's in this vape? Yep. And I want to, I want a vape that's tested and it's been approved. And, you know, it doesn't have, you know, vitamin E acetate or whatever it is in it. And so I think that, you know, there's probably a college kid market where they, you know, they're still, they're still perfectly satisfied, you know, getting, getting what they get on the black market. And it's probably, it's pretty good product. You know, it's all Northern California product, Oregon product, Mm -hmm. but, you know, it's not, it's not tested. You don't know what the THC level is. You never necessarily have the same variety. And so I think that in Massachusetts, I think the, the legal market is doing, you know, a, a really good job versus the illicit market. In California, um, you know, it's been a much different beast, right? It's been, you know, the illicit market is so sophisticated and the breadth of products are so sophisticated. And, you know, I think that California's come a long way in the last, you know, two years trying to, you know, shut down the illegal dispensaries and tr- shut down, you know, some of the some of the illegal, some of the you know the illegal grows. But um, I think that's going to be more of a process in California, um, and that's why you know entering that state, you know, we thought it was so critical to be, you know, have a great price point for for those for that market. And, you know, being able to go, being able to say that you can undercut the illicit market by, you know, 20 plus percent and still make really healthy margins. Unbelievable. You know, it's, uh, I think that's where you need to be, you know, just having, I think if you're in California and you say, wow, I've got this great product, people say, awesome, love the product, but you can't make any money on it because you can't produce it efficiently enough. That's tough business. Yeah, that's a tough business. And so I, I, I don't I don't question at all, you know, California's ability to have these great little niche brands and these great form factors and everything else. 
but the rubber hits the road on the production side of that. And as a business person, you need to make money. Um, and I think so that's well said. I think that's well said. Um, let's talk about money for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. You're, you're sure. a finance guy. I checked today, the stock price is right around a dollar, something like yep. that. Um, without giving any financial advice, because we certainly wouldn't do that on this show. Do you think it's indicative of the value that's been created today? Uh, give give sort of your thoughts on, on where it is as an investment. No, I think, um, you know, speaking generally about, you know, cannabis, I have friends, you know, I, I obviously still have a, a pretty broad network of friends who are in the investment community here in Boston, New York in particular. And, you know, they sort of say, well, geez, you know, maybe these businesses only deserve to trade at seven, eight times EBITDA. Maybe that's just the right multiple. And I would submit that there's, this is not a real market. It's not an efficient market. There isn't true price discovery in these markets. You know, Fidelity is not in there buying these stocks setting the price. Wellington, BlackRock, they're not in there. These stocks, you know, there are a handful of family offices and very small institutions who are invested in these. That's probably 30 to 50 firms. And then the rest of it is retail. And it's guys that are trading, you know, cryptocurrency, metals and mining, and weed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's very much a retail-driven chase the shiny new thing. It's news-based, it's sentiment-based, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was incredibly disappointed that, you know, they didn't attach, you know, banking provisions to the recent defense bill. Um, I think that banking for this industry, so to answer your question, no, I do not think that these, I don't think these stocks are at all um, appropriately valued. Mm-hmm. I think that given the growth dynamics of this industry and where we are in the growth curve, you know, I could make an argument that these things should trade at 20, 30 times EBITDA. And if we ever got, you know, real excitement about the space, they can go much higher than that and they wouldn't be absurd. You know, here we are with, you know, 50% year over year top line growth trading at single digit EBITDA multiples. Those are attractive and and they're profitable. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the, the run of the riffraff has been shaken out of this industry. You had to figure out how to get profitable because otherwise you didn't have access to any capital. Mm -hmm. And so I just think it's an one of my, I used to work with an energy investor at BlackRock who was a very good investor. And sometimes he'd say, Andrew, it's a gift from the stock market gods. And I think, and I'm not promoting, as you say, I'm not giving advice, but I think that this is an incredibly compelling time right now mm-hmm. to be looking at cannabis because yeah, you know, I mean- there's, been, there's been tax loss selling into the end of this year. There's disappointment about the lack of progress on the federal front, but you look at the fundamentals of these, this industry, these things are generating cash. They're, you've got great growth. They've got great growth ahead of them. You know, you've got much better managed companies than you did in the top 10 than you did even two years ago. Mm-hmm. And the valuations are attractive. So I think that, you know, whenever we get a sliver of movement on the federal side, and I was hoping it was going to be banking, that's going to lead this whole waterfall it's going to be a virtuous cycle, I think, where 
You have access to big money center banks. The cost of capital comes down in the industry. You get uplisted to U.S. exchanges. You aren't on backwater exchanges in Canada. Um, you get, and then you get real institutions who are able to play this, mm -hmm. where you know Fidelity comes in, BlackRock comes in. You know, those guys have billions and billions and billions of dollars to put to work. And, you know, a growth industry like this, trading at these levels, it just shouldn't stay there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's been a frustrating year for sure in the stocks. I think the average stock in, in the group is down, I don't know, 35%. Yep. People are sort of saying, ah, you know, and that's not, you know, it's tough. It's tough to watch. It's tough to attract, you know, new, new money. But I think that the fundamentals are there, the business fundamentals are there, the growth's there. And, you know, if we get any inkling of movement on the federal side, I think that this could be, you know, a very good place to be for years to come. So being a public company, obviously there's pros and cons. If you look back, I mean, there's a lot more private money available today than there was even a few years ago. Was that the right decision to be a public company at this point? No, no. I wish we were, I wish we were private. Um, you know, there was a period in, in 2018, 2019, where you have to appreciate how tough it was to come by money. You know, I'm a guy that, you know, has spent 20 years, 20 plus years of his career in financial services. I'm reasonably well plugged, reasonably well plugged. And, you know, I was walking around with my tin can, you know, saying, you know, trying to raise money in $200,000 chunks, for $30 million projects. You know, that was a tough road to hoe. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you see up in Canada, like, okay, you, you, you see people up there with access to capital. And you sort of said, well, shit, I, that would be nice to be able to have 30, $50 million in my coffers to start. And, and, you know, that, the, that kind of capital formation just didn't exist. And if you wanted to, you know, be acquisitive. You wanted to, you wanted to show, you know, a potential acquire, you know, if you want to buy a license in Michigan or whatever, you'd want to show that, that, that potential seller that, you know, okay, I'm going to give you stock. That's a currency that you can go and then sell. So you can actually monetize. It. So that was the thought behind us going public and, and most of the space going public in reality, the equity markets in Canada have largely been dry for a long time. Um, and you also by and large, you're dealing with, you know, kind of the underbelly of the financial industry up there. You know, you're not dealing with, you know, Scotiabank and Bank of Montreal. You're, you know, you're dealing with the guys who are dealing with Vancouver metals and mining. It's, it's a faster money environment. And by and large, like we haven't raised a lot of money yet. We just raised, um, we just raised $15 million, you know, inside of three, three days privately, you know, to help fund this acquisition we're doing in Massachusetts. Yep. Um, so long story short, I wish, yeah, I, I don't think that we'd, you know, being public isn't, isn't really necessarily helping us right now. I, in, a, in an ideal world, you know, there's plenty of, we would have waited to go on the U.S. exchanges when they opened up and do it properly. Um, but I will say, you know, the access to capital for, you know, the top tier names, you know, the top tier one, tier two names, it's there. 
It's never been there before. Mm-hmm. You know, you can get debt financing all day long. Uh, you can get, you know, convertible debt. It's not as robust as the debt markets, but geez, you know, you can get, you can get, you can get debt on a lot of debt for, you know, 10% coupon. Mm-hmm. That's pretty darn good. Yep. Considering our cost of capital used to be 20, 30%. Yeah. Well, I love your honesty. I mean, in business, we make mistakes and I, I think it's cool to acknowledge them and say like, Hey, what could we have done differently or how did it impact us? So thanks for that. Absolutely. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's switch a little bit. I want to hear about you, the person behind the, uh, the business a little bit. You mentioned you came from BlackRock. You were there a long time. Um, why weed? I mean, you could have done anything, right? You could have done a lot of different finance or CFO roles. Why weed? Well, I was, I was at a place where, you know, I was at BlackRock and BlackRock was a great place to work uh, for a while as an active manager. But BlackRock, you know, really started to focus on, you know, passive management. So they ETFs and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, we, it was a great run. I was there for 11, 11 plus years. And, but, you know, the day-to-day of, you know, managing small cap money, it's a grind. It's, you know, you're, 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 you're chasing basis points every day. And, you know, especially when, you know, you're, it, it could take a lot out of you. And so when, you know, I left BlackRock, I sort of said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to decompress here for, for a couple months. And, and one of my, one of my friends from, you know, the financial world was Josh Rosen, who was one of the founders of BlackRock or of Forefront sort of said, came to me and said, well, you interested in investing? I said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some money for Forefront. And then, you know, a couple months later said, well, this industry could really use a lot of, a lot more talent. Would you come into the industry? I was like, yeah. I don't really know. I'm not really, I don't really want to be the weed guy. I'm on the finance committee at my church and not going to be the weed guy. And it was really my wife. Um, Cause I was, you know, I'd been in financial services. It was sort of, you know, painting by numbers, you know, and I didn't want to go back to financial services. And I sort of said to her, I was, you know, would, would you mind if I did this weed thing? She's like, no. I think it sounds cool. I think it sounds like something you should try. And I really credit her for, you know, kind of giving me that nudge to take a chance. And, and, uh, you know, it was terrific. Like, you know, seven years ago, you know, it's, you, you told people you were, you were going into cannabis and they, they thought you were joking. Yeah. Like, no, seriously. It's like, yeah, I'm doing medical marijuana. (laughs) And you had to be like, no, really. And, you know, it was, it was, a, it was much more taboo than it is today. Totally. So anyway, um, you know, I, I, I came here, I thought it was going to be kind of a two, three year gig where, you know, I helped, I helped bring in some money and we put a management team in place and, you know, it, it hasn't been a straight line. It's been, you know, we've had to rejigger management a couple of times, you know, we've had, you know, some really dry capital markets where, you know, liquidity was a problem at points. So it's been, it's put a lot of gray hairs on my head. So I'm probably here, you know, a couple of years longer than I wanted, wanted than I originally expected to be. Um, but, uh, you know, it was a pretty cool challenge. If you, if you look at, you know, as a small cap growth investor, you know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to figure out who has the business model and the management team to become much bigger companies. And in cannabis, you know, you kind of have this blank slate 
was like, geez, here you know you have a $100 billion market. How are you going to attack it? Where's the sweet spot? What's the best business model? Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that stuff intellectually was, was really, really interesting to me. Um, and what you found in this industry is that the guys that kind of did well right out, out, of, the, out of the box were the guys that had access to capital early. And the guys that, you know, there are a lot of construction guys and real estate guys who did well in this early on. Because they were used to, you know, this is a project, you're putting up a big grow, you're raising the capital, you're putting it up, you're, you know, and there are a lot of the finance guys, the Wall Street guys that got into this and they wanted to talk about theoreticals and how this was going to look 10 years from now. When, and, you know, there was a lot of wheel spinning when really this was just a, a gritty blocking and tackling business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, agreed. I think that's really well said. Um, it's not like other businesses. It's, it's not technology venture capital as much as we may want it to be is just not um it's not yeah it's not not. and then and people were like oh my gosh you know we're gonna get you know silicon valley type valuations and we're gonna have you know we're gonna have access to capital even if we burn millions of dollars a quarter it's like no the game ended like it's not it's this is a we're growing we're growing weed we're selling weed Pretty, simple as that pretty straightforward um what's your personal relationship with weed like today you know i was um i've always i was always a guy that had you know a bag of weed in my sock drawer you know through you know starting really in my 20s um but i had a you know i was i was a i was a child of of, Ray, of the reagan administration i was a child of the 80s and 90s where just say no. And I was always very, you know, geez, my parents would never know that I you know, had a bag of weed. And so I guess like I always just thought it was you know, really taboo. I never trusted the medicinal value of it, you know, before I got into this industry. Uh, I was just much more of a, I was much more of a beer and wine guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and weed was sort of something I had around. And as I got into this industry and sort of understood you know, I, I vote, I, I'm embarrassed to say this. I think when, it, when the medical initiative first came to Massachusetts, I think I voted against it. Like my uninformed opinion was, eh, I always have access to weed. I don't need my kids having access to weed. That was the extent of my vote. Mm-hmm. And when I got into Forefront, one of our co-founders is uh, at this point a very dear friend of mine, Chris Crane, um, who's one of the founders of Forefront. And Chris was here in Boston. And it was just an education for me on, you know, the social justice aspect of this, how weed became illegal, how it became stigmatized, how helpful it is to so many different folks um, from a medical standpoint and a social standpoint. And so my relationship with weed is, you know, really evolved. Um, I my relationship with weed, I kind of got rid of the guilt and the angst and, you know, I'm very, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm in the weed business and this is what I do. And well, what do you tell your kids? It's like, I tell my kids that I'm in the weed business and this is, you know, a medicine and, you know, for recreational, it's a lot like alcohol and, you know, it's still inconclusive on how it treats developing brains, I think. So, you know, I don't want you guys dabbling in any substances until you're a little bit older. Mm-hmm. And so I've just gotten a lot more comfortable with it. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a regular weed consumer. Um, 
I, you know, it's, it's allowed me to, you know, greatly cut back on, you know, the amount, amount of beer I was drinking, um, you know, at night, if, you know, might smoke a bowl and have a glass of wine with my wife. And, and that's where, that's where I need to be. Nice. Um, nice. And if you can do that instead of having, you know, two bottles of wine, um, I think that's a win from a health standpoint and, a, you know, alertness standpoint, you're crushing your liver and all that. So it's been a, it's been very much a journey for me, you know, personally with, you know, my relationship with cannabis, but also just eye-opening in terms of, you know, I was just ignorant. I was ignorant. And so it's been, it's been a period of growth for me, you know, better understanding the issue and the social justice impact and everything that comes along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you weren't doing this, I know you said you didn't want to be in financial services anymore. What, what would you be doing? Um, I really, I really like investing. I really like finding cool investment opportunities that, you know, I think are going to succeed and you can put money into. What I didn't particularly like was the business of asset management where, you know, you're mark to market every month or every quarter. And, you know, there's always this constant pressure to for short term performance. So I think that I'd always like to have a hand in, um, you know, investing in some in some way, shape or form. Um, but if not, and outside of that, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in, you know, some, some philanthropic stuff, you know, we've had, you know, a lot of mental health issues in my family. And so, you know, doing, doing work around that and destigmatizing mental health as a, as a piece of, you know, your total health, um, I think is a, is a place that our society has a long way to go. Um, so I, I, as I get older here and, and uh, you know, I'm just more and more tuned into, you know, putting my time and energy, you know, my excess time and energy into things that I think are important um, in terms of where I think as a society, we have a long way to go and what could be impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, do you still invest outside the industry privately, angel invest, anything like that? Uh, I, I have a, I, well, my, my brokerage accounts got shut down 18 months ago. I had been a brokerage, been a brokerage client of Fidelity for 25 years. And they unceremoniously told me that my account was shut down when they figured out I was in the industry. Wow. So I haven't been doing, um, you know, really, you know, any individual stock investing for, you know, 18 months or so. Mm -hmm. Um, But, um, you know, and about that point, I sort of said, you know what? The biggest, the biggest swing factor to wealth creation right now is one stock forefront. And so I sort of took the attitude of let's make sure that we get forefront going and we're doing the things from an operational and executional standpoint to make sure that, you know, we have the best chance to create wealth out of that stock. But, you know, there's certainly, I have aspirations to, you know, I see a lot of different opportunities, you know, in this industry where I think that we are going to be great investment opportunities going forward for the next three, five years. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back into that. I think that's as good a place to start to wrap up as any. Um, how can the audience help you? Are you guys hiring for anything? You're looking for any partners, you know, whatever you want to plug. 
we are always hiring. This is a talent starved industry. Um, we're looking for, you know, really sort of every single level of, of, of our organization right now, you know, from managers to folks in the finance department to folks in HR. Now, I think we have some on the order of 700 employees right now, and, you know, it's going to continue to grow. So that's a big, that's, that's, that's a big thing for us. And, um, you know, really our push right now is, is, you know, we're spreading our products in California. Um, we opened our facility that we discussed earlier, um, uh, officially opened in early November. We've getting our inventory built up and, you know, we are, you know, active, very, very actively, you know, penetrating the, the California market right now. So, um, if folks are interested in, you know, having our product on the shelves or interested in a conversation or a tour of our facility in, 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 in California, we're more than happy to do that. So please reach out to me. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Andrew. It's been really a pleasure. You've been open and honest and can't ask for more. It was fun. Hey, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.